0: This Week with George Stephanopoulos starts right now. Striking back.
1: They have a lot of capability. I have a lot more.
0: U.S. forces hit dozens of targets in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen days after three U.S. soldiers were killed in Jordan. We're live in the region with the latest developments, plus White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Campaign kickoff. People are beginning to focus. Everything's picking up across the board. President Biden wins big in the South Carolina primary as pressure from his predecessor causes gridlock on Capitol Hill.
2: The bad border deal would be worse than no deal at
0: all. Is the bipartisan immigration deal dead on arrival?
2: We need to have zero people illegally crossing the border, and that is the target of this bill. What's been suggested is in this bill is not enough to secure the border.
0: We're joined this morning by House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries and Republican Senator J.D. Vance. Plus, the Biden re-election strategy is begging Taylor Swift for an endorsement.
3: We have had enough of Taylor Swift for now. Fox I News cannot people. think of a dumber political fight to pick than one with the Swifties.
0: Taylor Swift takes center stage in the 2024 campaign as some Trump supporters decide she's the problem. All the political fallout with their powerhouse roundtable.
4: From ABC
5: News, it's This Week. Here now, George Stephanopoulos.
0: Good morning and welcome to This Week. Retaliation for strikes against U.S. forces and Middle East shipping have continued through the weekend. The U.S. and Great Britain hit dozens of Houthi targets in Yemen Saturday. Following Friday, strikes against 85 targets in Iraq and Syria. The big question now, will this spark a wider war in the Middle East or work to contain the conflict? We'll ask President Biden's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, after this report from Marcus Moore in The War Zone. Good morning, Marcus. Well, George. Good
6: morning. We are right along Jordan's uh, border with Syria. That Syria just in the b- distance behind me, and tensions have been high here as officials confirm that U.S. and British forces, supported by six other countries, unleashed a new large-scale attack on Houthi targets in Yemen, including deeply buried storage facilities and air defense systems. American F-18 fighter jets and warships with the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group firing guided Tomahawk missiles, striking 13 different locations. Now, U.S. Central forces also saying earlier that they struck six Houthi uh, anti-cruise ship missiles prepared to launch and destroyed 12 Houthi drones on Friday, either mid-flight or ready to be launched from Yemen. And as you know, these drones are a serious threat to international trade transiting through the Gulf of Aden. And a U.S. official saying that those strikes in Yemen are not linked to the retaliation for the January base attack after several days of warning the U.S. retaliating against Iran-backed proxies for the drone strike that killed three service members at an Army outpost in Jordan a week ago. Iraqi officials say 16 people were killed, 25 wounded, while a Syrian human rights group says 29 members of Iranian-backed militias uh, were killed there. The White House is signaling that more strikes are coming, but they don't want an escalation. Iraqi and Syrian governments quickly condemning the retaliation, calling it a violation of sovereignty, and they said that it threatens stability in the region. And, George, a concern about escalation is growing among many here in the region, and, and the belief here is that as long as Israel's bombardment in Gaza continues, stability in this part of the world
0: will be threatened, George. In fact, Marcus, we have heard from the Houthis. They're vowing to respond.
6: Yeah, that's right. Uh, They have vowed to keep up their attacks on those ships in the Red Sea and that this will continue as long as the war in Gaza is happening. And the Houthis have said that they will only stop when a ceasefire is declared in Georgia, it is worth noting that these groups have still been able to carry out attacks despite the U.S. airstrikes. George.
0: Marcus Moore, thanks. Let's bring in the President's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Jake, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, just start out, what have our strikes achieved over the last couple of days? Is the retaliation done?
7: Well, George, part of the purpose of the strikes, the central purpose of the strikes, has been to take away capabilities uh, from the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria that are attacking our forces and from the Houthis that continue to threaten Red Sea shipping. And we believe they had good effect in reducing, degrading the capabilities of the militias and of the Houthis. And as necessary, we will continue to take action.
0: So, So do you expect more retaliation for the strike against U.S. forces in Jordan earlier this week?
7: Well, the first thing that I would say, and you noted it at the top of your program, is that this was the beginning of our our response. There will be more steps. Some of those steps will be seen, some may not be seen, but there will be more action taken to respond to the the tragic death of the three brave U.S. service members. And we cannot rule out that there will be further attacks from Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria or from the Houthis. We have to be clear-eyed about that. And the president in being clear-eyed about that, has told his military commanders that they need to be positioned to respond to further attacks as well.
0: Are you concerned about direct escalation from the Iranians themselves?
7: Well, again, this is something that we have to look at as a threat. We have to prepare for every contingency, and we are prepared for that contingency. And I would just say, from the perspective of Tehran, if they chose to respond directly to the United States, they would be met with a swift and forceful response from us.
0: How how much direct uh, contact has there been with Iran to try to contain this conflict?
7: Over the course of the past few months, we've had the opportunity to engage in uh, the passage of messages back and forth between the U.S. and Iran, Uh, but in the last few days, the message that we have sent to Iran has been through our action, not through our words.
0: Tell tell us about where things stand now on the negotiations over a possible ceasefire and uh, release of hostages in the Gaza war.
7: Well, George, we regard a hostage deal, the release of hostages, as both being obviously critical for getting people home to their loved ones, but also being critical to generate a sustained pause in hostilities uh, that can support the flow of humanitarian assistance, Uh, and that can alleviate the suffering in Gaza. So the president has put his shoulder to the wheel on this. He has spoken to the leaders of both Qatar and Egypt, two countries that are centrally involved in trying to broker this deal. We are in constant contact with our Israeli counterparts on it and the goal is in fact to get a hostage deal in place as soon as possible. Ultimately that comes down to Hamas and Hamas will have to be willing uh, to say yes to an arrangement that uh, brings hostages home, and we're gonna continue pressing from every direction to try to make that happen. Is it imminent? I can't say it's imminent, but ultimately these kinds of negotiations unfold somewhat slowly until they unfold very quickly. And so it's difficult uh, to put a precise timetable on when something might come together, or frankly, if something might come together. But uh, sitting here today, I cannot tell you it's right around the corner.
0: What is the end game here? Do you see any prospect at all? He seems to have been ruling it out, Prime Minister Netanyahu, of some kind of a long term deal that leads to a Palestinian state?
7: Well, the U.S. position on this is very straightforward. The only long term answer to peace in the region, to Israel's security in the region, Uh, is a two-state solution with Israel Security Guaranteed, a Palestinian state that also has uh, security guarantees for Israel. That's what we're going to keep working for. We were doing that before October 7th. I think since October 7th, the need to work on that uh, has only increased, and we would like to deliver an outcome over time that has eluded administrations of both parties for decades uh, that is in the best interest, we believe, of everyone in the region and in the wider world.
0: Will it require a new Israeli government?
7: Well, I'm not going to get into Israeli politics. The U.S. can only uh, advance our vision for what we think makes sense, and President Biden has been been very clear about that. He's been clear publicly on the two-state solution. He's been clear privately in speaking with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we have to let the Israelis speak for themselves.
0: Meantime, the president has been pushing hard for more aid to Israel, more aid to Ukraine. He's tied it to those negotiations over a possible border deal in the Senate as well. But last night we heard from the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, that he's going to put a a provision on the floor this week that simply is aid to Israel. Your reaction?
7: Well, the timing is interesting. Uh, The senators have been working on a bipartisan basis for weeks, if not months at this point, on a comprehensive package that involves Israel, Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific, and the border. Uh, They are getting close to having that done. And at that moment, uh, the House comes forward with an Israel-only bill. We regard that not as actually trying to address the security of Israel, but rather trying to address politics in the United States. And from our perspective, the security of Israel should be sacred. It should not be a political game. And so everyone should get behind a comprehensive package of the kind that a bipartisan group of senators are negotiating as we speak.
0: No indication that the House is going to do that. So if they pass it and it gets to the Senate, would the president veto it if it came to his desk?
7: The president is going to support a comprehensive package. He doesn't think doing these things piecemeal makes sense. And we think we will get an opportunity uh, for the Senate to move forward uh, with the package. And then the real question should be put to the House, not to the president. About how to move forward with that bipartisan deal. If that deal came to his desk, he would absolutely sign it without hesitation.
0: Jake Sullivan, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. And we are joined now by the House Democratic Leader, Hakeem Jack Congressman, thank you for coming in this morning. morning. Let's pick up where we left off there with Jake Sullivan. You saw the Speaker yesterday say that he's going to bring a standalone Israel bill to the floor of the House. Your response?
1: Well, we'll evaluate that legislation over the next few days, uh, and then on Tuesday morning, House Democrats will meet as a caucus. So you might be open to it? Well, to decide the way forward as it relates to America's national security priorities. Clearly, we've got to support Israel's ability to defend itself against Hamas and to defeat Hamas. We also need to make sure that we're doing everything possible to bring the hostages home, including American citizens, and to be able to surge humanitarian assistance to Palestinian civilians who are in harm's way in Gaza through no fault of their own. Beyond that, we also have to address the national security priorities of the American people in other parts of the world. First and foremost, certainly to support Ukraine's effort to push back against Russian aggression, also to support our allies in the Indo-Pacific, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea. The legislation being put forth by House Republicans does none of that. The responsible approach is a comprehensive one to address America's national security priorities.
0: Any prospect the speaker will put something like that on the floor?
1: Well, that remains to be seen. I think the Senate uh, is working its way through to a comprehensive agreement. We could see text as early as later on this afternoon, if not tomorrow, and we should evaluate that when it's available.
0: How about on the aid to Israel? Several members, progressive members of your caucus, have said that they want some conditions now on aid to Israel, including your fellow New York Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What do you say to them?
1: Well, Israel has a right uh, to defend itself and also, of course, a responsibility to conduct its war in a manner consistent with the international rules of conflict. We shouldn't put conditions on the ability of any of our allies to defend themselves, particularly against a brutal terrorist regime like Hamas.
0: What else needs to be in this bill?
1: Well, as the Senate is working its way through to a possible bipartisan agreement uh, dealing with our national security priorities in other parts of the world, supporting our NATO allies, stopping Russian aggression, uh, which is necessary. And Ukraine has done a very good job showing incredible resilience against a brutal Russian attack. We can't abandon that. And we also, of course, have to work on the challenges related to our broken uh, immigration system. We'll see what emerges from the Senate in that regard.
0: Perhaps. But isn't that dead on arrival in the House? The House Republicans made it very clear they're not going to consider something like that.
1: It should not be dead on arrival. See, You know, we need more common sense in Washington, D.C., less conflict and less chaos. We're in a period of divided government. That means we should be trying to find bipartisan common ground. House Democrats have made that clear. On any issue, we'll work with our Republican counterparts. When it makes sense in terms of delivering real results for the American people, how can a bill be dead on arrival and extreme MAGA Republicans in the House haven't even seen the text? They don't even know what solutions are being proposed in terms of addressing the challenges at the border. House Republicans at this point are wholly owned subsidiaries of Donald Trump. They're not working to find real solutions for the American people. They are following orders from the former president. That's the height of irresponsibility. That's what the American people dislike about Washington, D.C. at this moment.
0: It's pretty clear that this week there is going to be a vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Do Republicans have the votes to pass it?
1: That remains to be seen. But there is no evidence that House Republicans have produced to show that Secretary Mayorkas has engaged in an impeachable offense, has broken the law, has committed a high crime or misdemeanor, which is the standard for impeachment. What does impeaching Secretary Mayorkas have to do with fixing the challenges at the border? The answer is absolutely nothing. This is a partisan political stunt, and it should be abandoned by my Republican colleagues.
0: When it comes to politics, President Biden won the South Carolina primary, 96 percent of the vote uh, last night. Resounding victory there, but he's still locked in a dead heat with Donald Trump, according to some polls behind in many of the key swing states. What does he need to do right now?
1: Well, it was a tremendous victory in South Carolina, a decisive one. And I think it demonstrates that as we enter into the campaign season, the American people are beginning to focus on President Biden's incredible track record of results from the American rescue plan, shots in arms, money in pockets, kids back in school, rescuing the economy from a once in a century pandemic and allowing the American economy to emerge as the most advanced in the world. Yes, more needs to be done in terms of addressing affordability and the inflationary pressures, and President Biden has a vision to do that. Infrastructure and investment, past clean water in every community, bringing domestic manufacturing jobs back home to the United States of America, lowering the price of insulin to $35 per month for millions of Americans when it had cost $4,000 a year. This is an incredible track record of results and accomplishments. We will not run on this track record simply to say to the american people reward us but we can say trust us we say what we mean and we mean what we say we're going to continue to put people over politics and deliver real results for the american people and when the american people process that george i think president biden will continue to be in a strong position to be reelected
0: all signs do do now point though however to a close election even the prospect of perhaps that it could be thrown to the House, what are the prospects that a majority of uh, states' delegations will be controlled by Democrats if indeed this is thrown to the
1: House? Well, we're going to work very hard to make our case to the American people uh, that we are focused on finding common ground, exercising common sense to deliver the common good and make progress for hardworking American families. If we are able to successfully articulate that vision for the future, people over politics, lower cost, better paying jobs, growing the middle class, safer communities, fixing our broken immigration system, I think we're going to be in a strong position in November to deliver a House Democratic majority.
0: Hakeem Jeffries, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thanks, George. Coming up, 14th Amendment challenges to keep Trump off the 2024 ballot. Head to the Supreme Court this week. Our legal expert's going to break it down, and we're back in two minutes. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers.
8: There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
0: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. It was a masterful opinion of constitutional interpretation uh, of, of the disqualification clause in the 14th Amendment. It is unassailable as a matter of constitutional law.
3: I don't think Donald Trump needs to be president, but I will beat him fair and square. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have make these decisions.
0: That was former conservative Judge Michael Ludig and Nikki Haley weighing in on the Colorado ruling to remove former President Trump from the state's primary ballot. Supreme Court set to hear arguments Thursday over that 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which bars anyone from holding office who engage in insurrection. Let's talk about that with our chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams, and Sherilyn Eiffel, who's launching the 14th Amendment Center for Law and Democracy at Howard Law School this year. And, Dan, let me begin with you. What are you watching for from the Supreme Court this week?
2: Well, first of all, this is going to be a, a critical ruling. The question's going to be, what issue does the Supreme Court focus on? I'm going to be most interested in the oral arguments on... What questions are they asking? Meaning there are all sorts of outs here for the Supreme Court. There are all sorts of ramps. The question is, are they going to view it substantively? Are they going to evaluate uh, whether there was an insurrection or not? Or are they going to ask questions more about whether the president is covered by this? Is this something where there needs to be a conviction of the crime of insurrection? There are all sorts of possible issues. And this is where the oral arguments get a little interesting, which is where they focus at least may give us a hint as to what they're particularly interested in.
0: Do you go in assuming that the court, a majority of the court is looking for a way not to strike Donald Trump from the ballot?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind that the court will figure out a way to allow Donald Trump to remain on the ballot. And by the way, that may mean even just sending it back to the lower courts, et cetera. But I would be absolutely shocked if the court upholds uh, the Colorado ruling.
0: Sherilyn, you believe the 14th Amendment is pretty clear on this matter.
9: Yeah, as a matter of law, uh, of text, of uh, legislative history, of intention, the answers to all of the questions that Dan raised uh, are very clear, are very cut and dried. Uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is very clear that uh, those who formally took an oath for office, who formally served in office, who participated in, in, subsequently participated in insurrection, are barred from serving in either state or federal office uh it's not just John, Donald Trump but this happens to be uh the case involving him uh and if you look back to that legislative history and what the framers of the 14th amendment were trying to do they understood the need to be able to protect the republic you know George after um, after the civil war uh when they were reconstituting the congress the vice president of the confederacy tried to take a seat in the united states senate uh he had been elected by uh the the white citizens of georgia Uh, Four Confederate uh, colonels tried to be seated, generals tried to be seated, and they understood that they had to protect against uh, what they called uh, those who, having having been defeated in the field, uh, seek to win in the the political realm. So they understood what insurrection was. Um, We are new to this, fortunately, but this was placed in the Constitution with the vision that, forevermore, the republic would need this tool to protect itself. And I think there's no question that uh, Donald Trump fits into this. There's an, an excellent decision from the Colorado trial court uh, and from the Colorado Supreme Court that this Supreme Court is going to have to grapple with.
0: Are you confident that the Supreme Court is going to see the law the way you do?
9: <laughs> no, I'm never. <laughs> I'm a civil rights lawyer, George. I'm never confident the Supreme Court is going to see the case the way I do. But you know, if you if you think about it, I mean, I was listening to Dan earlier. Uh, you know, whether or not Trump participated in an insurrection, the Supreme Court is not a fact finding court. Those facts have already been found by a trial court, a duly uh, uh, legitimate trial court. Donald Trump and his lawyers had the opportunity to defend him. Uh, witnesses were called, evidence was heard, experts testified, historians testified. And there is a a very thorough, detailed decision uh, that lays out the case. So the Supreme Court really can't ask those questions um, in its role as a a reviewer. Um, What they can ask about is the law, and they can ask uh, a, a series of questions I think they will ask. Um, Is this provision self-executing, right? Does there need to be some statute from Congress that authorizes removal? They can ask those kinds of questions. Um, And and those are the questions I'm going to be focused on listening to the argument. What what I think this court will want, a majority of this court will want, is um, some indication that they cannot act without something else happening beforehand and that something else being in the hands of Congress. I agree that they will be looking for an off-ramp. But I would stress again by the court's own uh, philosophy, if one looks at the history and tradition of Section 3 and applies it to this situation, this case is cut and dried. Um, It's astonishing how closely this insurrection and Donald Trump's participation in fomenting it aligns with the goals of the framers of the 14th Amendment in creating Section 3.
0: Dan, this is likely not the last time the Supreme Court's going to be walking into this election this year. You've got the appeals court still dealing uh, with whether or not President Trump, former President Trump, is immune from any kind of prosecution. What do you make of this delay, though, by the appeals
2: court? Well, first of all, the Supreme Court could decide not to hear that issue, right? The first question is going to be, does the Supreme Court even agree to hear it? But, yeah, look, you and I have talked about this on, on the set of Good Morning America, that I expected there to be a ruling earlier from the appellate court. They seem to be moving pretty quickly on this question of, is there immunity? And now suddenly there's a delay. And you have to believe that this is because the three judges are trying to figure out a way to craft this where maybe they all agree on something. Um, I, they, they recognize the importance of the case. Something's going on, right? Based on the way that they were moving forward so quickly initially, something happened to put a delay in the process, which, as you know, has now led the trial court to say we can't move forward with a trial date at this point until the appellate court weighs in and by the way once the appellate court weighs in there's going to be all sorts of other procedural questions uh, depending on what the ruling is it could go to a request for en banc which means the entire court as opposed to just three judges hearing it they have to make a decision there if it does go to the supreme court there's a briefing schedule there's an the amount of time that each side gets so the process moves on the to- the clock is ticking and the question becomes does the appellate court factor in when the election is, and in theory they shouldn't, in reality it's hard to believe that they don't.
0: Sherilyn, do you think we'll see a trial on the January 6th case this year?
9: Well it's hard to say. I think, George, we're uh, unfortunately focusing on the appellate court. Where we should be focusing is on the Supreme Court. Which in December received a petition from Jack Smith, December 11th or so, asking them to take the court, to take the case ahead of appellate review in order to keep the schedule. And the Supreme Court declined to do so. Of course, the Supreme Court has done this before and many times during the Trump administration. They did it in the case involving uh, Wilbur Ross, the the uh, Secretary of Commerce's deposition. They did it in the travel ban case. They did it in the UNC, uh, the New University of North Carolina. Uh, affirmative action case. They did it in the case of young people suing under climate change. They did it in DACA. Uh, Why did they not do it in this case, a case of of paramount public interest uh, involving whether or not the president can can be prosecuted? Um, under the, the charges that Jack Smith has brought. So while we're focusing on the appellate court, I think it's important to uh, remember that the Supreme Court fumbled the ball on this in December. And by fumbled, that sounds like it's accidental. I don't know whether it was or not. But, but this was a, a, Jack Smith tried to avoid this. And this seemed to me a very appropriate case in which the Supreme Court, on a matter of law, of presidential immunity, could have taken this ahead of the appellate court and we would be on schedule.
0: Thank you both for your time this morning. Roundtable and Republican Senator J.D. Vance are coming up. Stay with us. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called
9: security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms.
0: She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect
8: with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I can't stomach Trump. I think that he's noxious and is leading the white working class to a very dark place. He's leading our political discourse to a very negative place. If Trump is elected president, he has to be a much different president than he was a candidate. As a candidate, he was fundamentally divisive, arrogant. I'm a never-Trump guy. I never liked him.
0: That was J.D. Vance back in 2016. Now he's a Republican senator from Ohio supporting Donald Trump, and he joins us this morning. Senator, thank you for joining us this morning. Back in 2016, you also wrote that Trump is unfit for office. Why have you reversed yourself?
4: Well, I think in office, actually, George, he did a great job, and he proved me wrong. He also proved a lot of other people wrong, which is why I think he's doing so well in the polls these days. We have to remember, George, that Joe Biden promised to return to normalcy and yet we have a world on fire. We have war in the Red Sea, war in Eastern Europe, war on the southern border, a terrible drug crisis, and of course, A lot of young Americans who can't afford to buy a home because interest rates are so high. So compared that to the track record of four years of Donald Trump, where we actually had a secure border, we had rising wages for the middle class, and we had the American dream that seemed more attainable and more achievable for more people. uh, It's hard not to conclude that I was wrong and so many were wrong about Donald Trump back in 2015. He delivered, George. He did a good job. And I think it's why we ought to give him another run at it.
0: Of course, wages are rising now, and we just saw that economic report come in this week showing the economy continues to grow, new job growth as well. But since then, uh, Donald Trump not only lost the 2020 election and tried to overturn the results, he also faced a series of legal judgments and indictments, most recently this E. Jean Carroll case, where juries have found him liable for sexual assault and defamation, leading to ads like this.
9: Supporting Donald Trump sends a message to every abuser every rapist and every man who's ever used his power to hurt a woman. Because if he can do it, why shouldn't they?
0: How do you respond to that, that your support of Trump is sanctioning that kind of behavior, sexual assault and defamation?
4: Well, I think it's actually very unfair to the victims of sexual assault. Uh, to say that somehow their lives are being worse by electing Donald Trump for president when what he's trying to do, I think, is restore prosperity. So I think it's insulting to victims of sexual assault. If you actually look at so many of the court cases against Donald Trump, George, this is not about prosecuting Trump for something that he did. It's about throwing him off the ballot because Democrats feel that they can't beat him at the ballot box, and so they're trying to defeat him in court. Uh, This case, like so many of the legal cases against Donald Trump, they're trumped up, they're they're in extremely left-wing jurisdictions, or it's actually the Biden administration prosecuting his chief political rival, I think most Americans recognize that this is not what we want to fight the 2024 election over. Let's fight it over issues, let's fight it over how to redeliver prosperity to the American worker and peace to the world at large, not over these ridiculous court cases that frankly they've been throwing at Trump for well before he became a political candidate, and they're gonna be going after him for a long time because his agenda is actually a threat to the people who have been calling the shots in this country for far too long.
0: You call it a ridiculous case. These were juries that found him liable for sexual assault and defamation. That's ridiculous?
4: These are juries, George, in extremely left-wing jurisdictions. These are cases that are very often funded by left-wing donors, and they're cases that are funded explicitly to harm him politically, not to seek justice for any particular group of individuals, George. If you look at all of these cases, the through line, twofold. Number one, they're funded by Donald Trump's political opponents, and the goal here is not to help us actually have a real conversation about how to advance the country forward. Their goal is to defeat Trump at the courts because these people know they can't defeat them at the ballot box. It's really shameful, actually, George, if you think about so many of these people who say we're, we're living in a world where there's a threat to democracy. Donald Trump or his supporters are threats to democracy. And yet they're using the courts to deny the American people from even having a choice. If you don't like Donald Trump, of course, you can vote against him. But you should at least have that choice. And it's telling that the people who talk about threats to democracy are trying to destroy the democratic process in this country. We've gotta talk about the issues, George. There are so many crises happening all across the world. There are so many problems right here at home. I think Donald Trump is the best guy to fix those problems. And I think that we have a very, very good chance of persuading the American people. What they don't wanna talk about is weird juries in New York City. They wanna talk about how to make their lives better and how to bring the world to a more peaceful place.
0: So juries in New York City are not legitimate when they, when they find someone liable for sexual defamation and assault?
4: Well, when the cases are funded by left-wing donors and when the case has absolute left-wing bias all over it, George, absolutely I think that we should call into question that that particular conclusion. We have to remember, of course, that these cases exist not because they were trying to seek justice. Reed Hoffman, a far-left donor, did not fund this case because he cares about what happens to sexual assault victims. He funded this case to harm his political opponent, Donald Trump. It's pretty weird. It's a weird thing to do to use the courts in this way. It's never happened before in American history. And yes, I think it should call into question the entire apparatus that's being used to go after Donald Trump.
0: So you're not troubled by the sexual assault and defamation. Let me ask you about January 6. You've been mentioned as a possible vice president for Donald Trump. Had you been vice president on January 6, would you have certified the election results?
4: Oh, George, this is such a ridiculous question, in part because the law has changed here. Uh, We of course had a. I didn't ask you about going forward. I asked you what you would have done.
0: I asked you what you would have done. George,
4: here's here's what I think happened in 2020, and I know you guys are obsessed with talking about this. I have to make a point here. You constantly say to people like me, why do you talk about January the 6th? Why do you talk about the election of 2020? And then you ask about us multiple times during a six-minute interview. But look, you ask the question, and I'll answer it. Do I think there were problems in 2020? Yes, I do. Do I think it was a problem that big technology companies working with the intelligence services censored the presidential campaign of Donald Trump? Trump? Yes. Do I think it's a problem that Pennsylvania changed its balloting rules in the middle of the election season in a way that even some courts in Pennsylvania have said was illegal? Yes, I think these were problems, George. And I think there is a political solution to those problems. So Litigating which slate of electors was legitimate, I think is fundamentally the political solution to the problems that existed in 2020. It's a reasonable debate to have. And I find it weird, George, that people like you obsessed with what I call what happened in 2020. You're so incurious about what actually happened in 2020, which is why so many people mistrust our elections in this country. We've gotta do not better, the least, George.
0: I'm not the least bit incurious. In fact, you laid out a litany there, but you didn't answer the question I asked. Would you have certified the election results had you been vice president?
4: If I had been vice president, I would have told the states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and so many others that we needed to have multiple slates of electors. And I think the U.S. Congress should have fought over it from there. That is the legitimate way to deal with an election that a lot of folks, including me, think had a lot of problems in 2020. I think that's what we should have done.
0: So it's very clear you would have done what Donald Trump asked you to do there, not what President Mike Pence did. You said that that's about the past, but Donald Trump. No, no, George. Well, that's what you just said. It's not
4: about what, it's not about what it's, George, it's not about what Donald Trump asks somebody to do. It's about what do we do when you have a problem like what happened in 2020? How do you respond to it? How does the political system respond to this? You can't have a media apparatus that looks, for example, at the intelligence services working with technology companies to censor Americans and say, well, we just can't deal with this, there's no solution to this problem. And by the way, George, I don't wanna talk about this stuff because I think what happened in 2020 is far, far less important than what's happened since 2020. The wide open Southern border, the fentanyl crisis plaguing our communities, the inflation crisis that is making it hard for Americans to afford a good middle class lifestyle. We need to litigate the 2024 election about those issues. You guys are obsessed with talking about 2020. I'm happy to answer the questions, but I think it's a disservice to the American people that you're so preoccupied with it.
0: Well, it's the President Trump is preoccupied with it, it is too. He's the one who's talked about pardoning those who participated in the riots. And you did this answer the question. You would have refused to recertify the election. I do want to talk about the agenda for 2024 because you also have laid out very clear advice for what you want Donald Trump to do. Let's listen.
4: I think that what Trump should do, like if I was giving him one piece of advice, fire every single mid-level bureaucrat, every civil servant in the administrative state, replace them with our people. And when the courts, because you will get taken to court, and then when the courts stop you, stand before the country like Andrew Jackson did and say the Chief Justice has made his ruling, now let him enforce it.
0: Fire everyone in the government, then defy the Supreme Court. You think it's okay for the president to defy the Supreme Court?
4: No, no, George, I did not say fire everyone in the government. I said replace the mid-level bureaucrats with people who are responsive to the administration's agenda. You know, every civil servant democracy. in the administrative one of the state. problems, no, George, I said the mid-level bureaucrats, and one of the problems that we have in this government... You said every you civil servant in the administrative state. Who, ...who don't who. Let me finish the the answer, George. You asked the question. We have a major problem here with administrators and bureaucrats in the government who don't respond to the elected branches. Let's just give one very real world example of this. In 2019, Donald Trump, having defeated ISIS, said that we should redeploy our troops in Syria and Jordan out of the region. You had multiple members of the Defense Department bureaucracy who fought on that. So what happened? We have people who are sitting ducks in the Levant right now, three of whom just got killed because the bureaucrats aren't listening to the political branches. That's a fundamental component of our government, George, that whoever is in charge, agree or disagree with them, you have to follow the rules. If those people aren't following the rules, then of course you've got to fire them, and of course the president has to be able to run the government as he thinks he should. That's the way the front- Constitution works. It has been thwarted too much by the way our bureaucracy has worked over the past 15 years.
0: The Constitution also says the president must abide by legitimate Supreme Court rulings, doesn't it?
4: The Constitution says that the Supreme Court can make rulings, but if the Supreme Court, and look, I hope that they would not do this, but if the Supreme Court said the President of the United States can't fire a general, That would be an illegitimate ruling, and the president has to have Article II prerogative under the Constitution to actually run the military as he sees fit. This is just basic constitutional legitimacy. You're talking about a hypothetical where the Supreme Court tries to run the military. I don't think that's gonna happen, George, but of course if it did, the president would have to respond to it. There are multiple examples throughout American history of the president doing just that
0: you didn't say military in your answer and you've made it very clear you believe the president can defy the supreme court senator thanks for your time this morning no 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 george Roundtables george. up next we'll be right back back now the roundtable joined by former dnc chair donna brazil former rnc chair trump chief of staff Ryan Priebus, washington post congressional reporter mariana sotomayor and political senior col- political columnist jonathan martin thank you for being here donna let me begin with you we saw ninety six percent of the democratic primary vote Pretty low turnout in South Carolina yesterday for Joe Biden, but a new NBC poll out this morning showed he's still trailing Donald Trump by five points. What does he need to do now? Well,
10: George, this was the beginning of the Democratic process. And I think as we go along, including in Nevada next week and on to Michigan and Super Tuesday, Biden will pick up additional momentum. This is up until now, it's been really a race for the Republican uh, nomination. And so this is an opportunity for Joe Biden to once again show up, to turn out his base. And to begin to figure out how to pivot, to enlarge that uh, base that he built in 2020.
0: What's the case that Donald Trump needs to make right now?
10: Well, I think you're going to
5: see that the Trump campaign is going to start shifting their focus on just general chaos in regard to Biden's administration, whether it be in the Middle East, whether it be crime, whether it be the border, uh, turning the whole chaos word on its head against Joe Biden. And look, Joe Biden's two things have happened this week. Not good for him. One. Trump's court cases seem to be fizzling down the road and away from being resolved before the election, which has been the Democrats' real hope here, and they're losing that. And Biden's polling is still stuck; it's stuck at 37, 38 percent approval, is very low, and he's behind in every battleground state uh, on average in America. And that comes with all the court cases, all the all the attacks on Trump, yet. Joe Biden is losing everywhere across the country.
0: Mariana, we just heard Ryan say that the Trump campaign wants to use this chaos theme, and it seems pretty clear, you cover Capitol Hill on every day, that the Trump and his allies are determined to make sure that nothing happens on Capitol Hill this year.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have seen Republicans fall in line, especially when it comes to any directive that Trump has given, most notably on border security. That's the big debate that we should expect on Capitol Hill this week. I mean. It's not surprising. And you actually hear Republicans saying the quiet part out loud. Why are we gonna give Biden any wins? He doesn't deserve any wins. We shouldn't be tackling a number of these issues in a presidential year. Just let the voters kind of figure it out. That's actually a point that a lot of Republicans now when it comes to the question about impeaching Biden, that's a little bit trickier on Capitol Hill. And Republicans are saying, just let this election play out. They're trying to not actually answer that question. Is there any too.
0: chance that this bipartisan border deal Ukraine and Israel funding gets through, or is that dead on arrival?
3: I mean, it seems pretty true. We're still waiting for the Senate to release the text of this. It's possible it can get through the Senate. Getting it through the House, I mean, we basically saw Speaker Mike Johnson admit that they're going to delay putting that on the floor. And he also has a number of Republicans in his conference already publicly saying that if he puts a border security bill on the floor, if he puts a Ukraine funding bill on the floor, they will motion to vacate him. So this is a bigger question for House Republicans. It it seems I don't want to say it's dead on arrival, but it seems like it's headed. Jonathan,
0: you have a column in Politico this morning saying the Democrats are are not keeping their eye on the ball when it comes to third parties, that the real threat is not no labels. It's it's a third party on the left wing.
11: And George, there's a precedent for this. Twice in the last 25 years, Democrats lived this nightmare. Ralph Nader in 2000, Jill Stein in 2016. They understand this risk, and this risk has been elevated in the last few months because of the war in Gaza. And this is a straightforward math issue. If Joe Biden loses 30,000 to 40,000 votes in Wisconsin and Michigan, places like Ann Arbor, Dearborn, and Madison, that's the election. That's the presidency. And there's been so much focus in Washington on no labels. Will it be Joe Manchin? Who's going to run this and that? We know the threat to Biden today. And today it's Jill Stein, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and Cornell West. They don't need to get a lot of votes. Are so,
0: they going to get on the
11: ballot in the places well, where it counts? Well, that's, that's the, the, the key. Point. Not all three will. But... Kennedy's flirted with the Libertarian line now, Stein wants to get on the Green Party line, that's important because that makes it easier for them to establish parties. If you can get on those lines in, in, in key states, that is decisive.
0: The question is, will Taylor Swift make up for that? That's one of the things the Biden campaign is, oh, is looking yeah. at right now. And Rice, i got to bring this to you because uh, Fox News, at least several of the personalities on Fox News, seems to have become obsessed with the idea of Taylor Swift uh, helping joe biden some even going so far as to say that it's part of a conspiracy a psychological operations conspiracy led by the pentagon
5: <laughs> <laughs> well Pull that out, right? I, I, I i i'm not going to go there look i think the whole thing <laughs> well that's really I, bold right, <laughs> it, no i mean i think it's a powder keg of stupidity um you've got talk two affair. of the most you talk about two of the most popular things in america right now taylor swift and the nfl and we've got a party that wants to you know, grow the tent, uh, I don't think attacking those two, uh, Taylor Swift and the NFL, is obviously the way to go. Um, I, I think we ought to have a few things in America that we can agree on. Um, and uh, those are two things so that we can't. Even if from- she does take a political position, she doesn't like Trump, fine. That's not going to change, I don't think, anyone's votes in November. But what could change people's votes is if, you know, you start coming up with these kinds of conspiracy theories. Well, I was going to where do, do know, these come from?
0: Theories. You're in tune with Republican voters. You're in tune with Fox News. Where do, Where
10: is this all coming
0: from?
5: Um, it, you know, I think a lot of the things that are out there are clicks. I think it's popularity. It's the it's the it's the race to saying something, you know, outrageous to get people to, to listen to you. And and it's a, it's part of politics today. I mean, look, we live in a world where division is profit, right. unity is a loser. Uh, social media algorithms are driving, I think, our country further apart. And this is just one more of many things that you can read online or, or, or in social media that it, you have to just George, yeah. move on. It's from. also which side are you on, too, right? And. Taylor Swift is
11: basically picking Team Blue effectively. And so for Team Red, that's that. But, you know, it is puzzling, though, because as Ryan's points out, it's like going after, like, Oxygen or, like, Golden <laughs> Lab puppies. I mean, it's like, it's hard to find more popular figures than the NFL, the last remaining unified institution in America. And, and Taylor Swift, the biggest pop well, star in guys, the world. Guys,
10: can I just say something? As someone who loved the NFL, before Taylor Swift started dating one of his famous stars... Who that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, I took a picture with Drew Brees the other day, so I'm still trying not to wear the same clothes. But the fact is, is that she's a cultural icon. She speaks to many voters under the age of 40, both Republican and Democratic voters. So I don't get the fact that the Republicans are attacking someone who is such a unifier with young people. I didn't become a Swifty until after the song Karma, and, of course, the album Midnights, which is up for another uh, Grammy album of the year. But this attack on her, it's it's similar to the the attack on NFL,
5: And and, and the other part of this is the NFL viewership. I mean, if you took NFL viewers and you did a poll of the election, are you voting for Biden or Trump, Trump would win that election. I mean, the idea that you'd attack really a a big foundational issue within the NFL, you've got to learn... How to count votes, and and, and, and it's not Republicans Prince, attacking. Trump it's not a, it's not Republicans contest. attacking Taylor Swift. It's some people on the internet right. that are hitting, that send on a on a tweet. Right. That's all this is. And so there are plenty it's of other people me. like me that are calling it what it is. But, okay, but can I, yeah. can
10: I address yeah. one issue? Yeah. This whole issue of chaos. You know, I've been sitting here thinking <laughs> chaos. Chaos when they are. Joe Biden is not only delivering on his promises to get us out of the, the pandemic. We're the envy of the world when it comes to the economy. We're, he's growing the economy. He's investing in manufacturing. Uh, black unemployment is the lowest in American history. Uh, no, I mean, it's so, yes, no, it's not. Yes, it is. not. Yes, it is. No, oh, Seriously? Not. Black unemployment. Black unemployment. I mean, look, we're not going back to slavery, okay? We're, I'm saying that in terms of what Joe Biden has been able to do to help ordinary Americans, middle-class Americans. He's done a great job. And why are Republicans holding up a bipartisan border deal when we can finally resolve the crisis at the border? But they want to get Donald well, okay. Trump. Well, 99% on issue.
5: of what you just said is wrong. And, like and the what? question is, why why aren't the voters in these battleground states in agreement with you? Why is Joe Biden losing outside the margin is, of error? And everywhere? that's going to we're
0: going to have to end on that question, I'm sorry. That is all for us today. Thanks for sharing part of your Sunday with us. Check out World News tonight. And I'll see you tomorrow on GMA. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms.
9: Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms.
0: The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the
8: 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed
9: wherever you get your podcasts.